I think so many people that are really driven in their careers um, do it from an unhealthy place yeah. because it's to mask the fact that they feel that they're not enough. So I was yeah. always driven to make it as an actor and I wouldn't take no for an answer and I was relentless and, um, and I'm grateful for that because I, I had a good career, but at the same time it, it came out of feeling like I wasn't enough and I wouldn't be lovable yeah. unless I got recognition and money and I wouldn't even say fame. I wasn't even really so much about fame. I just wanted to be recognized for my work and, uh, and well, I wanted to be adored externally because yeah. yeah. I didn't adore myself internally. Very excited for today's episode. That wisdom nugget that you just heard there was from my friend Rain Wilson. And you're certainly going to know Rain Wilson from his Emmy-nominated SAG Award-winning role as Dwight Schrute on NBC's The Office, which I don't know how many seasons that, <laughs> that thing ran, but an absolutely epic show. And this particular episode today with... Rain is one of my favorites in a long time, specifically because it asks big questions with foundational, principled, responsible paths through these huge questions. Namely, we're talking about Rain's new book, which is called Soul Boom Why We Need a Spiritual Revolution. Now, of course, you know, Rain, he's hilarious, right? He's um, an actor, a producer. He's written other books before. He's been on the show, a guest on the show, uh, at least one other time to my memory. Um, he created a media company called Soul Pancake, which has since been acquired. And he's interested in the big questions, despite you knowing him as uh, as the very you know funny and comedic actor that he is. He's like uh, he's a, an incredibly thoughtful, soulful human. And today's conversation reflects that in spades. Now, this new book, Soul Boom, Why We Need a Spiritual Revolution, is, uh, I think its goal, if I if, if I were to sit him here and have him intro today's show, it would be, this is about starting conversations. Look, it's a very interesting time, um, cosmically, uh, politically, um, with social media and so much, you know, we have, you know, instant access to dopamine at all times. And he supposes and the the book, I guess the premise of the book is that we need to dig through all this stuff and ask some big questions. And today's episode does a great job of introducing those questions. I think he, he hints at some answers. He would also be aware that, you know, he's, you know, he doesn't want to be any, any guru or anything, but he's just so heartfelt and earnest and smart around these big questions that you are going to get a ton of value out of today's show. Um, some great little revelations. He has, he shares a good bit about his past in, um, uh, in, you know, a difficult childhood in some addictions and how, you know, spirituality helped him move through that and how he thinks that it could help all of us. I'm very excited about today's show. So I'm going to get out of the way and let this show speak for itself. Yours truly. And the one and only rain Wilson. Welcome back. You're here. Welcome to Seattle. Chase Jarvis. Made I'm it. in the house in Wallingford. That's right. Tell Wallingford, me. Seattle, no less. You, I have a you have a history here. Crazy history here. I need to hear this. We when you walked up, we you said Wallingford. I have stories. And so before we get in, 
to the show. What? Why do you have a, a history in Wallingford? What's happening with Wallingford? Okay, so I was born at Seattle University Hospital. Uh, my parents are from Seattle. I we lived in Nicaragua for a few years. Look at you with the little Nicaragua. Nicaragua. <laughs> Nicaragua, you throw that in for <laughs> authenticity. And uh, we lived in Olympia for a couple of years, but I was, but we were always coming and going from Seattle. It was my family's hometown. And I ended up just north of the city in Shoreline. Uh, went to Lake Forest Park Elementary, Kellogg Junior High, Shorecrest High School. No, none of your listeners care about that. Sorry. <laughs> I do. They're boring. That's... Edit it out. <laughs> but. First of all, what's the Wallingford connection? Okay, so we are live. We are on Wallingford Avenue. For those who do not know where our studio the is, the center of Wallingford, which is a just a uh, upper middle class residential neighborhood. It was always a little a little nicer than Ballard, yep. but it was still working class for sure. It this was is working what I, class. Yes. This is where this is where like the middle managers of the lumber <laughs> companies lived. In Wallingford. So yes, with their 2.1 kids. Yeah, exactly. So beautiful homes, you know, a lot of them hundred years old. My grandma lived on Meridian. Wow. Okay. So okay. when we came back from Nicaragua, I was five years old. We lived for about five months at my grandma's house on Meridian. And that's like that's three blocks. Three from blocks here. from here. Yeah. And 34th. No way. Yeah, that's, that's literally three that's blocks two, from here. two and a half blocks from here. <laughs> I lived when I was five years old. So that's crazy. Should we go there after? Let's do it. A little pilgrimage. It doesn't, they knocked it down. They knocked down the house and built a big tower there. Um, and in the basement was Erickson Brothers Sewer Company, where my dad worked as a sewer construction manager in the office. It then converted to Jim Dandy Sewer Company. For those Seattleites who want to keep up with the history of sewer companies in Seattle. So... My dad, so a lot of times in the summers when I was really bored and, you know, cause I remember the seventies and the early eighties when boredom was a thing. Yeah. There wasn't like dopamine constantly constant yeah. dopamine hits yeah. off of games and distractions yeah. on your phone. Um, I would go in with my dad and then I would go down to gas. I remember when Gasworks park was first built. Wow. Which is a, for those who don't know, like it was this old oil refinery down by the lake and it's, and they turned it into a park, a gorgeous park. You can fly kites and you kids yeah. could climb on the right oil on the machinery, yeah. but then they found all this toxic waste <laughs> in the soil and they, how long did they shut it down? Was like, it, it was a decade probably. Yeah. It was like yeah. 10 years. They shut it down because yeah. the kids were like eating the dirt that was filled. <laughs> like, and, uh, so that's part one. So I spent a lot of time at, uh, Meridian and 34th right down the street, um, then um, my dad uh, got a divorce in 1985, and he moved in across the street. So I lived, I lived with him for a year on that same in that same block, but across the street because he was still working at the sewer company. And then I got a job at Ballard Marine Supply and Hardware, driving a delivery truck, no and I would way. ride my bike down 34th, right here <laughs> where your studio is, yes. and I would ride down to Ballard. <laughs> And I would drive a delivery truck, a big cube truck. And this was before Google Maps and phones, yeah. right? This is the mid-80s. So I had a Thomas guide. Oh, my God. And I would be hauling propellers and boat engines and boat parts and boat paint um, all around to, like, little marinas and whatnot uh, for, like, I mean, $4.75 an hour, something like that. It was, like, and they had this 19-year-old driving these big... <laughs> So there was that, but then 
I guess what's more important is that was a really seminal time in my life where I'll get a little real for a minute, where my dad and my stepmom were getting a divorce. My, my actual, my birth mom left me and my dad when I was a year and a half and I didn't really see her very much till later. So my stepmom was really kind of my mom who raised me. They were getting a divorce. My dad was really depressed. Hence, I was so codependent. I got really depressed. Mm. And I started going to the University of Washington while I was driving Marine Supplies. And um, I had a nervous breakdown. Uh, me and my friend John had an apartment up on uh, 45th over by the Dick's Drive-In. Oh, yeah. And um, my parents met there. At Dick's Drive-In? Yes. I went there last night. <laughs> At that go. Dick's Drive-In? Yeah. Or the Capitol yeah. Hill one? Yeah. Uh, how about that? I don't, Apple doesn't fall far from the tree as, as the saying goes. Yeah, look at that. Um, so you were- I have some suggestions for Dick's, oh. the corporation. Okay. Because I, I ate there last night. Do you the, want me to tell the Mr. The fries Dick? were better than In-N-Out. The fries are like superlative. Yes. Like some of the best fast food French fries you can ever for get. Sure. The chocolate shake, excellent. Crushes, yep. Let's get to the burger a little bit. <laughs> I know you're like Mr. Healthy Guy. You don't probably haven't had a Dick's cheeseburger in 15 years. Since breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> the beef could use some improvement, okay? Oh, okay. It's, it, you could tell it was a frozen patty, mm. and they got to up their game. They, okay. If they want to compete with Shake Shack, like okay. Shake Shack kicks All ass right. on the beef. All right. They skimp on the lettuce. The sauce is great. Yes. I would just say better, my only, I would say uh, better lettuce, tomato, beef. So um, the whole actual burger. But the, <laughs> the whole. You just described every element of the yeah, burger. But the bun was good and the okay. sauce was good. Okay. So uh, anyway, that's my, that's my suggestion in case the CEO happens to be listening. Okay, that's the equivalent of it had a good roof and a good paint job. But everything in the house yeah, needed replacement. If you, you, the, you really want to work on the foundation <laughs> and the walls <laughs> and the plumbing and the electricity. Can we go back to your uh, depression? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. What was going on there? I was going to the University of Washington. I was working my ass off driving marine supplies around. And um, my uh, dad was really depressed. I was either living in his basement or I was living with my friend John up on 45th. And I just was really, uh, I'd always suffered from some sort of depression or anxiety. I've talked about that, you know, before, and I talk about it in my book, but um, especially anxiety, really crippling anxiety attacks and, and whatnot. And I don't know what happened exactly. I was just really depressed and feeling lost and really anxious and I had an incident where I um, uh, I was really frustrated with something in our apartment, and I just uh, I just started punching the mirror, and I my hand was bleeding and was cut open, and I was screaming, and I just lost my shit, and I started sobbing, and I just felt so lost that I walked out the door from. The, you know, there's no cell phones, right? I walked out the door from that apartment by Dick's drive-in and I walked all the way down Meridian mm -hmm. uh, with blood dripping from my hand down to my dad's office where he was working uh, at the sewer company. And I was sobbing, like snot sobbing and blood dripping off my hand. I must have just looked uh, insane walking down the street. And I, 
And my dad was so emotionally clueless, God rest his soul, he passed away two years ago. Um, he didn't know like how to comfort someone or how to yeah. interact with someone who was being emotional. I mean, he was kind of from that really old school way of being and he he didn't know what to do. And he's like, hey, buddy. And pat, like, pat, pat, pat on the back, exactly. Yeah. And he's like, let's go out for some teriyaki. No. Yeah. So he got like a towel. He like pulled out the glass shards from my hand and wrapped it up. And I think maybe sprayed some Bactine on it and wrapped it in a towel. And and he drove me downtown and took me out for teriyaki. Wow. Had a little teriyaki place that he liked. I, I don't, I don't know. And I was just... It was days where I was kind of in a daze. And I really had had, uh, I don't know if it would qualify as like a nervous breakdown. I had an emotional sure. breakdown. But that was the first of many to come in my 20s, uh, which I could very conveniently segue into a plug for my book right now. But I'm yeah. not going to, Chase, because okay. I'm not that cheap. Okay. But I will say that. It's all connected. My mental health journey is very much connected with my spiritual journey. And I will say that uh, I love this quote by Julia Cameron, uh, who said, uh, I come to spirituality not out of virtue, but out of necessity. So for me, digging into spiritual paths, spiritual tools uh, for well-being was something that I needed to get by. It's not like, oh, I'm some saintly guy who's so spiritual and so kind and blah, blah, blah. I'm kind of a dick, but it helps me <laughs> get through the day. But that's my Wallingford story. And then driving that delivery truck up and down through Fremont, over that Fremont bridge, I would go over the Fremont bridge 10 times a day. Was this, I do want to segue to the book. We, we will talk about it in depth. It's called Soul Boom and it's about a spiritual revolution, why we need it. So was you cited prior to the Wallingford driving around story, it, there was a very subtle subtext of I'd had a bunch of emotional and anxiety. Was that, was that always a part of your constitution? Was it how you, you remember your childhood? Are those this, like the key memories or was, was that an afterthought? Like how much in the forefront of your experience was anxiety and fear and stuff like that. To be really honest, mm -hmm. it wasn't until I started unpacking my childhood in my 40s yeah. in therapy when I really started therapy about <clears throat> like 15, 16 years ago yeah. that I realized how much depression and anxiety, addiction, uh, all those goodies, loneliness, alienation drove my life and mm -hmm. my youth. Got so it. during the time... There wasn't a vocabulary for that yeah, in the, in the 80s. With it, there, wasn't, yeah. there, wasn't, there were a couple of self-help books around, you know, and The Road Less Traveled I read. And uh, I remember a lady in, in the 90s maybe, and that was really helpful. And that's, an, that's a masterwork yeah. uh, for those who haven't read it. But, um, but there wasn't terminology about even the word anxiety. Anxious yeah. was like... You're afraid you weren't going to make your appointment in time because your car was getting an oil change. That's what anxiety was. It wasn't yeah. a concept of it yeah. as a mental health issue, yeah. uh, which of course we know it as today. But when I look back on my childhood, yeah, it was just filled with depression and anxiety yeah. and ways to mask it, hide from it, medicate it and escape it and soothe it. Yeah. So, you know, what, whatever that was, uh, that's my, that's my history. Do you feel like the, the history and the 
adaptations, you know, we know now through the rise of anxiety and the social um, awareness of mental health that coping mechanism, that those are actually coping mechanisms, right? right? That how you, when you mask something, you press it down or you, you know, turn to alcohol or drugs or any number of vices, that those are really mechanisms for managing. And sometimes they work. That's the thing about it is they're really effective. And they work and they work for long periods of time. And some people can use, effectively use alcohol to medicate and soothe for decades until it stops working. Until it doesn't. So this is where I'm going is, was it when you turned 40 or when you said earlier, like when you started doing some work to uncover this anxiety or your childhood and some of the, the uh, challenges you went through is that when you connected the dots looking backwards and said, Oh wow. So my drinking too much or my, you know, my career drive or whatever the addictions that you, you um, processed, that was a result of a very difficult childhood. Yeah. Um, I did kind of every, I did recovery and therapy and everything kind of bass backwards. So it, I, it wasn't the typical story. Um, I had a hunch that my drinking was problematic. I never was like a fall down drunk. I never was like, you know, fall down in the, in the gutter on the bar and get poured into a cab kind of situation very, very rarely. But I kind of realized when I was kind of on a spiritual search in the nineties, when I was in my, in my late twenties and early thirties that, um, you know, let me look at this drinking thing. Cause it kind of seems to be the center of my life. And I seem to do it every day, even in just small amounts. What would it be like to just stop? So I just quit cold Turkey, um, no therapy, no 12 step meetings, anything like that. And a lot of anxiety started coming out. Uh, then there was going to other stuff like, you know, workaholism, porn, you name it, like anything that I could use to uh, medicate anxiety. And then I went into therapy when I moved to Los Angeles because it's chock-a-block with therapists. You can't spin around without hitting a therapist in Los Angeles. <laughs> and, uh, and you know, people would talk about it. So you sure. go to L.A. and yeah. all of a sudden, in New York, people don't really talk about it. In L.A., people are like, so my, my therapist, therapist was blah, blah, blah. And I went over to therapy here. I went on this retreat. And I was like, oh, wow, maybe I need to check that out. And I was still very unhappy and... Uh, I found a, a terrific therapist and that's when it kind of like all came together. Like, Oh, I get it. Like, you know, the, my drug phase and my alcohol phase, that was all coping. And, and then it's like, Oh, so this was all mid thirties, really mid late thirties, right before the office really. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I'm glad you mentioned like workaholism essentially like yeah. that, that drive to succeed, that kind of ambition and was also part of like, I am not enough. Yeah. You know, I did this intensive retreat, this in- intensive therapy retreat at this place called PCS in, uh, in Scottsdale. It was really great. And they were like, we want you to say daily affirmations. And they gave me a list of daily affirmations. And the top one on the list was, I am enough. That was the first one. And they were, you could choose one. Sure. And I just picked it up and I was like, oh boy, no, I'm not saying that. And the therapist was like, oh, oh, which <laughs> one? And I was like, the, I am enough. Like, oh, well, that is the one you're, you're going to say. And so had me hang it on the bathroom mirror 
and start every day saying, I am enough. And it was so painful for me to go, I am enough. I'm even just that simple. And so I think so many people that are really driven in their careers, um, do it from an unhealthy place yeah. because it's to mask the fact that they feel that they're not enough. So I was yeah. always driven to make it as an actor and I wouldn't take no for an answer. And I was relentless and, um, and I'm grateful for that because I, I had a good career, but at the same time it, it came out of feeling like I wasn't enough and I wouldn't be lovable yeah. unless I got recognition and money. And I wouldn't even say fame. I wasn't really so much about fame. I just wanted to be, recognized for my work and, uh, and well, I wanted to be adored externally because I didn't adore myself internally. Yeah. Do you feel like there is a, was there a connection between if if that was in your mid thirties and what, what we're on here folks for the listeners is this really is the beginning of a spiritual journey when you're sort of less aware that this, (laughs) this is what the journey looks like. You can connect the dots looking backwards like, Oh, Oh. And I, and I do want to get into You've been very overt about your faith. We've talked about it. You've been on the show before. Um, but to connect some of these dots, do you feel like your awareness, you said in my mid-30s, I stopped drinking and then I started using these other mechanisms to cope. And this was before the office. So if we're connecting these things, is there a connection to make there? Did you, it, it was it through this process of reconciliation with your past and your anxiety and some of these ways that you were using to cope, was it? essentially a breakthrough when you actually managed that stuff and looked at it that it gave way to a really successful career or was there still a lot of um entanglement yeah with your with your no that's that's a great question and it it really it's a mix it was a mixed bag okay i was in recovery by that point i realized like oh i was uh an alcoholic and i was using alcohol to soothe and manage my anxiety, which made my life unmanageable. So I needed to address that. And you know, when addict of any stripe just quit something, they, they call it white knuckling and it can be, they can become total assholes. And I, and I did, I raged a lot more Mm -hmm. when I stopped doing that. Um, I was not as good a husband to my wife. We've been together through this whole endeavor and she's been incredibly supportive. Um, so I was, I was sober and, and happier and on a therapeutic path by the time I got the office. So I had, I had my shit together enough to yeah. be able to kind of like focus and do really good work. Yeah. Um, but I was, but it was still fueled by that workaholism, that perfectionism. Yeah. And, and in fact, it's funny because a week ago, I did an event in New York with BJ Novak and we were talking, someone asked like, what's your biggest regret about the office? And we both had the same regret. And it was, so it's every kid here. I am this nerdy kid from Seattle. I've been driving Marine parts <laughs> through Wallingford and over the Fremont bridge. And here I am not that far later, you know, I guess, 2018 years later, I'm starring on one of the most successful TV shows. I'm recognized for my work. I'm getting Emmy nominations. I'm getting paid handsomely. This is, it's it. I made it. Yeah. This is the check. Yep. That's, that's the yep. dream. That's, yep. that's it. It doesn't get better than that. And I, and I wasn't happy and I still wasn't satisfied. So here I am in the office, especially those first 
five years or so, and I wanted more. And I, it was not enough. And again, I was not enough. Yeah. It was not enough. And any, anyone would say like, you've got like, enjoy it. I didn't really enjoy those. So many of those early years I did later on in the show when I kind of realized like, Oh, this you know, is going to run its course. <laughs> it's going to run its course. And I, I don't, it doesn't get better than this. Yeah. And I love these people and it's so much fun. And this is a dream job as an actor, just enjoy it. But I was like, I need a movie deal. I want, huh? I want to get a, a studio deal and, uh, uh, you know, and have a first look deal at Warner brothers. And I want an office there. And how come, you know, this movie bombed and I really wanted it to work. And how come I'm not being considered for this project? Yeah. And, uh, you know, it was, it was that, uh, now, and, and you deal with this a lot with your show uh, and I'd love your perspective on it. Like what's that balance? Do you think between, never being satisfied and having an unhealthy relationship to kind of work and accolades mm. versus having a healthy drive of like, I want to do my best. I want to maximize my results. I want to leverage this success into even greater success. And uh, I want to move my career forward. Cause I know you've talked to thousands of people yeah. about this, but, and that's still something that I wrestle with. Yeah. I don't think, I don't think I'm on the other side of it personally. I do there is a similar experience with this with my photography and or filmmaking my my art career outside of just the show um where you become one becomes aware that this is the thing you're not on your way to another thing yeah this is the thing this is all we have and how it, do you do that oh this is is it, it a Buddhist Eckhart Tolle thing? It actually in the it, moment. It, it, it is very the much. It, it is a presence thing, and it came to me through meditation. Just the ability to be present, and mm. that is what a lot of anxiety, you know, is anxiety is worrying about the future, and regret is worrying about the past. Mm. And then if you're doing those things, you can't possibly be comfortable in the moment. My wife, akin to yours, who you gave a, a lovely shout out to, my wife Kate, has she's always been like five steps ahead of me spiritually. Mm -hmm. So Same with mine. I'm, I'm yeah. like, I'm getting all her downstream benefits of meditation and mindfulness and awareness practice. But it wasn't, you know, you, you chalk up a few wins, what would be career wins or, you know, sell a company or, you know, win an award or get nominated an Emmy nomination. And then you realize that, well, that lasted a good, like, four days. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Okay, what next? How do I? Uh... Totally. The parties are over. Everyone's moved on. You know, you went to the Emmy celebration. You didn't win. And now I do, what do I do? I just, I, that's it. I, I got to go start all over. I got to try and do another one of those things. Yeah. And after two or three of those, you, then I started to love the process. Yeah. And it was when I turned to the process that I found a little bit of, okay, can I be joyful doing what we're doing here? Like I actually enjoyed working with my crew to set up the lights in advance of our show today. That was oh, okay. part of the process. Yeah. I can't say that I have arrived though, because there's not a day that goes by where I don't catch myself not being present. Mm. So this, one of the reasons that I'm fascinated with spirituality and your journey mm -hmm. and your ability to talk about it very publicly as a, let's just say celebrity yeah, and make, make fucking sense and be a smart, articulate person about the subject is I'm curious how connected are these things? Was spirituality always a subtext for you or was spirituality something that you arrived at through recognition of 
wait a minute, the world around me is either not what it seems or there's got to be something more. Like, how did you actually start to recognize that this is foundational for me? Yeah. This is a guide. This is, I mean, you, you use a lot more eloquent words in, in the book. Again, well, I'm a lot smarter than you. Yeah, this, I'm used to that. Um, soul boom. Why we you need a spiritual. Pictures. <laughs> Thank you. It doesn't take very many brain cells <laughs> to do that. I just got a good right finger, right? <laughs> no, no the, the, what is the foundation for this? How did you arrive at it? And it's clearly paid off in spades because well, you're sitting here talking so articulately about this stuff. Well, um, I don't know that it's paid off in spades, but that is a great question. And I'm a professional, Rain. I, you have done a few of these <laughs> episodes before, apparently. The, um, I will say that it's really pretty simple. I grew up a member of the Baha'i faith here in Seattle. My dad uh, and family uh, were here kind of hippie-ish Baha'is in Seattle. There were a lot of them here. It's not really fair to describe it as a hippie religion. It is an Eastern religion. A lot of people in the late 60s and early 70s were searching for spiritual paths. You know, the Beatles went met Maharishi. with the Maharishi and... You know, Cat Stevens became a Muslim and people were meditating and and searching and questing. And that included my parents and they became members of the Baha'i faith. So I grew up, Chase, with a foundation of spiritual practice in my household. Hmm. We would say prayers together. We would meditate together. It wasn't exactly like present day meditation, but we would mm -hmm. sit in stillness. We would pray. We would just kind of commune. There mm -hmm. wasn't any kind of systematization to it. We'd have people over, we would sing songs, we would read from the holy texts of the world's religions because that's one of the key elements of the Baha'i faith is that they accept the divinity of, of Lord Krishna and the Bhagavad Gita, of the Buddha and, uh, and of Jesus and the Bible and Muhammad and the Quran. So Baha'is, besides having our own spiritual beliefs and leadership uh, and history, turned to other faith traditions. So it was a, it was an odd thing. And I talk about it in the book a little bit. My, uh, parents had a fractured, loveless marriage and a deep, rich spiritual practice that emphasized love and connection. So that'll fuck you up. <laughs> I'm sorry to laugh. No, it's, it's true. Like, it's just, That'll, yeah. That and that and so a lot Very of people who confusing. grew up in religious faith have had this kind of experience. There's a, yeah. there's oftentimes a kind of a disconnect or a hypocrisy, mm -hmm. and that's one of the reasons Americans have turned away from organized religion in droves for very good reason. There is a tremendous amount of hypocrisy. You know, you know, uh, James says, who's Jesus's brother, he says, faith without works is dead. So that separation. Baha'u'llah, the founder of the Baha'i faith, says, let deeds, not words be your adorning. So what you do rather than what you say, it's, it's, it's an adage as old as the hill. It's mm -hmm. a, it's, it's a, it's a faith based wisdom and a common folk wisdom. You know, don't, yeah. don't say one thing and do another, yeah. you know, practice what you preach. It's, it's really simple. We hate people that don't practice what they preach, but my parents, God bless their souls. They found themselves in this really bad marriage divorce became an option, but they really didn't want to get a divorce and they were raising me and, uh, they didn't love each other. They fought a lot. They were very disconnected and yet they loved the Baha'i faith. They loved the founder of the Baha'i faith, Baha'u'llah. They wanted to serve humanity, pray, sing together. So 
I grew up in that household. And so I had very, in my guts, I had all these mixed feelings. Like yeah. I love that faith stuff too. I love the meditation and the prayers and diverse together, people, yeah. black folks, white folks, Hispanic folks, Native American folks. We had a lot of Native American Baha'i believers up here in the Northwest in the yeah. in the seventies, getting together, you know, cleaning up a park together, singing together, uh, cooking together and uh, reading the word of God together. It was, it was beautiful. And yet my family was so unhappy and my mom would have a fight and smash plates in the sink and go slam the door. And my dad would pretend like nothing was wrong. And here I am nine years old. I'm like, what the fuck is What's going happening? on? And yeah. um, so the reason I give that whole story is when I jettisoned all of that rich stuff and went to New York to become an actor, I didn't want anything. I saw the hypocrisy of my parents. I was like, screw that. I don't want anything to do with the Baha'i faith, God, spirituality, religion, the soul, faith, belief, morals, especially morals. I didn't want any morals to apply to me. And I just got rid of all of that. So then when I started getting really unhappy and having these kind of anxiety breakdowns and dark despairing nights of the soul, I thought, well, you jettisoned all that stuff. Maybe you lost something in the doing. Mm. Can I say in the book, I, I threw out the spiritual baby with the religious bathwater. So I threw out the religious bathwater and I might've lost the spiritual baby. So how do I find that connection, purpose, meaning light transcendence mm -hmm. that some kind of faith interaction gives you. Mm -hmm. And that's what led me on a kind of a slow, steady journey to explore spirituality in a, in a much deeper way. And I read a lot of books and a lot of holy works and, and was, I was searching, I was actively searching again, that come back to that quote, like I came to spirituality, not out of virtue, but out of necessity. Cause I, I wanted handholds. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you feel that the desire for handholds is a, is that a human character? Is it a human trait, an attribute? Is, is, is it a need? Do we need handholds to live the human experience? Well, that's a great question because I'm sure there's a lot of people listening who are like, well, that's great rain, but, but some of them might've called me Wayne. Some of them might've said, that's great Wayne. And then they went, oh, wait a second. His name's Rain, it's not Wayne. Rain. So some of your listeners might've done that, but most of them were kind of, uh, but many of them might have kind of said, well, that's great for you, Rain, and I'm glad that worked, but you had a weakness and you needed faith, spiritual handholds to prop you up. You needed a God and a higher power because you were weak and you didn't have the fortitude to just do it on your own, right? So yeah. there is a big belief around that yeah. as people over the last three or four decades have been leaving organized religion and faith, yeah. they have also seen God and faith as a weakness. Like, oh, that's, and I did. Sure. I did when I was in my 20s. Yeah. Like, oh, old ladies need to believe in something higher, a sky daddy they can pray to and be like, please God, help me out. Give me some spaghetti or whatever. Like help me, help my cousin Jackie to get a job at the nail salon. Like you need big daddy to protect you because yeah. you're not doing it yourself. So there's this kind of 
uh, tension. Yeah. Right. I don't, I don't feel that. I, I will say that, um, one of the problems I have with a lot of kind of self-help based podcasts and YouTube channels is there is kind of this, there's a lot of emphasis put on will and like, you got to will it to happen. You got to make it happen. Like do your list, wake up at 5.00 AM like Joe Rogan and, and, uh, Mark Wahlberg and bench 300. And then, you know, Tony Robbins do your deep breathing and your cold plunge. And then God, you're like the early bird gets the worm. Then get out and do your, now listen, there's nothing wrong. In fact, there's a lot right about getting up early, doing cold plunges, making to-do lists and motivating yourself. But I, I feel like that turns a lot of people off because they, they fail a couple times and then they're like, ugh, I can't do it, you know? And I, I'm here to say it's okay because will can only get you so far. And there's something that one can access and harness that's deeper than will. And that is purpose, vision, belonging, meaning that is bigger than yourself. You know, the whole idea of the 12 steps is that you ask for a God of your understanding because it's more powerful than you. And when you're in addiction, you're the most powerful thing in the universe. And then when you, when you surrender it, something else is more powerful than you, whether it's nature or God, or whether it's the collective group. So, uh, I think that self-will can only get you so far and motivate you so much. And there's, uh, these handholds that you're talking about can be incredibly helpful to everyone. Uh, the idea of surrender, the idea of asking for help gives one a humility and out of humility, there's a great deal of strength too, because mm. self-will can lead to arrogance and entitlement. And then you get knocked down and you don't know what to do. If you have a vision, a mission, you know, you know, your vision, your mission, I don't know you that well, but in our interactions of the years, you support charitable works. You are very active in the city of Seattle. You try and have elevated conversations with people to help inspire them. You take beautiful photographs. You try and you have your team of people, you connect people like it's, it's really beautiful, but you have a, besides your will of like what I'm going to do in my to-do list today, you have a, a vision and a mission of like. I want to bring people together. I want to tell great stories. I want to put light into the world. I want to take beautiful images. Am I getting it right? You're, I'm just going to hire you. <laughs> right? I should be your spokesperson. <laughs> yes, exactly. But I'm not, I'm not trying to blow smoke up your ass, no. but I do think it's important to understand that you have, I, I don't think it comes from a faith necessarily, but you, but this, you let that vision guide you, not Chase Jarvis's will inner strength, ego, kind of like uh, willpower yeah. to do that, that you're, you're in service to something greater. So in some ways you can just let go and you can relax and be like, all right, I'm on the Chase Jarvis mission. I'm going to bring light images, conversation, connectivity. Let's go. What's on the docket for today? Let me do that. And you're in service. And that's what I think. And that's what it comes down to. I believe that humans have a innate capacity and a need to be in service to something larger than just themselves and their own egos because mm. your own ego willpower can only get you so far that spoken somewhere in there is a beautiful cold open for the show that's that we're, <laughs> we're going to excavate that the 
One of the things that I was intrigued with in your book, death is a piece of this universe. Mm -hmm. And I'm hoping you can help us understand a little bit because, you know, for sure of the people who are listening right now, someone is facing it. Someone has just lost someone they love someone. And in the face of, um, spirituality, death can be very, very confusing to a lot of us. Um, and you cited earlier in our conversation, your dad passed away a couple of years ago. Uh, I'm wondering, I mean, you have a chapter in the book, chapter three, death and how to live it. Mm -hmm. Um, what role does that play and how, how ought we help our listeners think about it? So part of what I'm trying to do in soul boom, why we need a spiritual revolution is to just, um, evoke deep, meaningful conversations on spiritual themes, because I find today's young people, especially are not, uh, curious enough about the big, big, big questions. Is there a God? What happens when we die? If we are a soul, if we are a spirit having a human experience for 80 or 90 years, what does that mean? How does that work? Uh, how can I make myself more connected uh, to nature through access to my soul, etc.? The list goes on and on. And one of the topics that I think is most important for people to start really delving into is death because death is the ultimate framing device. It frames life, mm -hmm. you know, in, in having a deep contemplation of death, uh, you can see your daily life in a much richer way. And I, I have dozens of examples in this chapter on death about, you know, the native American tradition of, uh, today is a good day to die. You know, the warriors, uh, would say, you know, especially the Sioux warriors that would say today is a good day to die. It wasn't like, oh, I'm going to go to my death. It's like, I'm ready to die today. I have lived a good whole rich life. And if I die today, so be it. And so I can savor this day to its maximum knowing that I'm ready to go to my death. Right. So many cultures and religious traditions have these ideas on death in Tibetan Buddhism. There's a nine part death meditation where you literally go from you meditate. Part one is like you die. Part two is like your family surrounds you. Part three is you're buried. Part four is your body starts to rot. Part five is your family is grieving. Part six is the worms eat you. Part seven is your soul. Is, like you really go through these stages of like in a deep mindfulness meditation of what happens when I die, what's going to happen. So what does that do? Does it make you bummed out and depressed and like, oh, that's a big bummer. I don't want to talk about that. Like so many Americans do. Um, no, it it goes, wow, that's, that's real and that's going to happen. So here I am alive. Let me deeply appreciate this because someday I will be rotting and worms will be eating me and my family will be grieving. And that's just a fact. The list goes on and on. Memento Mori, the whole idea. Remember the Stoics. We were, yeah. Stoics. Yeah. That was a it's part of their daily practice. Remember yeah. you are going to die. Yeah. Um, so we don't talk about death in America. We don't think about it. We don't discuss it. Uh, it's like a, this taboo thing, you know, and there's a lot to be gleaned from it. 
this isn't just some crazy new age Baha'i actor talking about it. Like this is billions of people through eons of time that have delved into death as a very legitimate and real topic. Yeah. So part two is that we have to understand that in death, there is great suffering. And when I lost my dad, I was devastated. I was rocked. I was rocked for a year or two. I would just burst into tears at the drop of a hat. I would just like start sobbing in, in the grief and the loss of him. And it, and it was horrible. It was heart wrenching. I still miss him to this day. Um, death is hard. My death would be really hard on my wife and son. His death was really hard on all of us. When I know someone, my good friend Javier just died a week and a half ago, just heart attack and dropped dead at age 60. He's going to be missed. He's amazing. Uh, it's heartbreaking. It's wrenching. We're going to the service this next week. And, um, but as the Buddha says, life is suffering. The Buddha says, I teach one thing and one thing only suffering and the end of suffering. You know, the, the, it's the bedrock of the four noble truths. Uh, to understand that life is suffering and that death is part of that suffering, to live in peace with that allows you to be more resilient. So what's the number one thing in the mental health epidemic among young people that psychiatrists and psychologists, social scientists point to with young people is resilience. Young people are really struggling with resilience. When bad things happen to them, mm -hmm. they're not knowing how to respond. Yeah. And I think, and I could go on and on. I know I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm on a little bit of a rant right now, but I'm going to keep going. So shut up. So <laughs> the um, increased resilience allows you uh, greater well-being and mental health. So death, suffering, resilience, well-being. This is really some basic psychology stuff. Yeah. Carl Jung talked about it, you know, 120 years ago. It's, it's pretty basic. It's, it's basic to Buddhism and so many religious beliefs, but we don't talk about it and we don't talk about it from a spiritual perspective because if we are souls, if we're having a spiritual experience while in these human vessels, um, then death is not the end. Death is not lights out. Death is just the next part of the journey. Just like when the baby comes out of the womb, the baby, that's not, that's not the end of life for the baby. It's just the next iteration of the, of a fetus's life is becoming a toddler and a baby and a child and adolescence and adulthood and old age and then death. And then there's the next phase, whatever that is. That's from my Baha'i belief mythology, but I think it applies to everyone. And I, I am certain that it is true. So this knowledge that we're on a spiritual journey, suffering is real death is real this gives us resilience it makes our lives better it's the ultimate framing yeah yeah it, yeah. it really i'm gonna go to a john lennon quote you've got here i'm not afraid of death because i don't believe in it it's just getting out of one car and into another i, I love the framework and the uh i guess the backdrop that you approach this with so i think one of the things that has been difficult for you know we've thrown some rocks at americans they're a little bit callous when it comes to a lot of this stuff is that there, <clears throat> there is, it's either right, wrong, good, bad. One of the things I love about the Baha'i, some of our dear friends, neighbors at our beach place up on Kameno are the Baha'i faith, Alan and Linda, and just watch them, the tolerance 
the openness, the connection that their that spirituality um, evokes in them and by extension the others that are around them it's inspiring it's open it invites connection and do you think that is that a specific characteristic i mean in, in just our conversations today you've talked about you know you've referenced the torah the bible the you know bhagavad gita ba, yeah, yeah you yeah, you, Buddha, you, yeah. you had 20 different traditions you're working in here mm-hmm. is that are you trying to be seductive in this or is this like is this foundational to what you believe and what you think is available to us what do you mean seductive is it like it's you can almost like it's very inclusive you're mentioning everybody yeah and is this part of what you're on a quest for spirituality again the book soul boom why we need a spiritual revolution this is not why you need to become baha'i right this is not you know, everyone yeah. should go to church. This is not, you're talking about spirituality, presumably with a capital S here. Yes. And so are you, is it, in, are you intentionally seducing us that, hey, it's, I don't, I'm not telling you what you need. Yeah. But we all need something. 100%. So, okay. 100%. That this is, I, my journey brought me back to the Baha'i faith. There's a lot of sections that are inspired by the Baha'i faith. This is not at all a book that has some agenda to make people Baha'is. This does have an agenda that is straight out. And I say on page one, I want to encourage spiritual conversations. Yeah. We're not having them. There are spiritual tools that can make your personal life better and can also make society better, yeah. period. Yeah. It doesn't matter if you're agnostic, if it doesn't matter if you're a young person in the largest growing religion in the United States, which is the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, because people who check none of the above on uh, the on their faith, <laughs> that's what they're called. So spiritual, but not religious. It doesn't matter. It, it even doesn't matter if you're atheist. And it doesn't matter if you're, if you're Lutheran or Methodist or you're Hindu or Sikh or, or, or Buddhist or kind of like Judist. There's a lot of Judists in Los Angeles, <laughs> former Jews turned Buddhist. Um, uh, whatever you are, these tools and these questions and these conversations can can help you. So for me as a Baha'i and for Alan and Linda or whatever their names are. Exactly right. Uh, wow, I got it. Nailed it. Shout out. Um, you know, uh, this is part of the Baha'i fabric is to find the truth for yourself and to draw on the deep, rich religious uh, faith wisdom of of many faiths uh, to, to give us strength and to unify people mm-hmm. and bring them together. But yeah, that's... I really wanted this to be something for everyone. If, mm-hmm. if they're spiritual but not religious, if they're just a little bit curious. And the reason I say atheists too, because I had my good friend, Mike Wenzel from Seattle, I went to high school with. He's a diehard atheist. And he really enjoyed the book event I had last night and what I was talking about because he's like, listen, anything that just brings people together and heals them and mm-hmm. creates unity mm-hmm. is so important right now. So if you want to talk about God while you're doing it, fine. I want to be a part of that. Yeah. So, because all the faith traditions boil down to one thing, love each other, <laughs> be more compassionate, come together, right? Yeah. That's in every faith tradition. So yeah. how how bad can that be? You also start off the, the book with a bunch of stats, right? There's a, the growing now and your own story started with anxiety for Mm -hmm. example uh we 
in the front of the book talks a lot about how, you know, suicide is at an all time high for young people, um, you know, addictions through the roof. There's just a, a litany, a list of things. Do you feel that these things that we are in a time like, uh, either a dearth of spirituality or a, an excess of pain or is just information moving more quickly and we're more aware of it? I don't know the source, man. I, 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 yeah, I mean, that's a great question. It's, uh, you know, I do think, and people know, and if you look at the work of Jonathan Haidt, uh, H-A-I-D-T, uh, he has a substack uh, where he is really investigating the hard data points around this mental health epidemic with young people. Um, obviously social media plays a part. So yeah. it really kind of quadrupled in these terrible statistics around 15 years ago, kind of with the advent of Instagram, especially among adolescent girls. So there's something inherently unhealthy about social media. I took social media off my phone about 10 years ago. I still use it to kind of broadcast my message and, you know, but I have people running it and I send stuff and they, and they put it out there. I probably shouldn't even be admitting that, but no, no, it's, it's, it's unhealthy for me because I'm such an addictive guy. I would just yeah. sit all day scrolling, liking, and, and, and I was finding hours of my day being eaten up yeah. by Instagram and Twitter, right? Well, there's no question. We've had other guests on the show, um, one not too recently, a PhD from Stanford talking about how that is, that is catastrophic, the, the constant dopamine availability mm. we our nervous system was not designed for it um, and that 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 there's always a way to get a fix to get the chemical that is that is i think she used the word catastrophic like so it's real and yeah. social media it's not your your surmising is factually based sure so is let's return back to the question though is that so does that mean we need this now more than ever yeah Okay. And that's the other reason I wrote the book is the stakes are really high. Yeah. And what we haven't talked about too much, because it, and it's really uh, kind of in the back half of the book, is like is about the spiritual revolution. Mm -hmm. So spirituality is often talked about as you know what makes my life better: um, mindfulness, meditation, uh, uh, releasing anxiety, uh, exercise, uh, healthy dopamine hits, mm -hmm. uh, cold cold plunges, et cetera. This is like our spiritual path. And that's what people, especially in blue state, big city America kind of focus on. But my thesis is that there are also spiritual tools and ways of thinking about spiritual wisdom and faith traditions that can unite us and bring us together and heal and reimagine systems. Mm -hmm. So, our systems are all breaking down. And I talk about later on in the book about how, <clears throat> how there, it doesn't matter what system you work in. Um, it's breaking down and people are very dissatisfied with it. You don't hear anyone yeah. saying, Oh, I work in architecture and it's going great. It's so easy now. <laughs> it's so easy now. It's gotten better and it's, it's clearer and the architecture system is, is fantastic. And, but you know, 
if you work in education, you work in healthcare, you work in transportation and in, in manufacturing and in the environment systems and certainly government and, and politics and partisan politics, don't get me started. But because our systems, Chase, are based on the worst of humanity, uh, our systems are based on uh, aggressiveness, combativeness, competition, contest, profit, one-upsmanship, backstabbing, every man for himself. It's a dog-eat-dog -dog world. All of these kind of concepts that are baked into our Western capitalist consumerist model of doing things mm -hmm. um, brings out the very worst in humanity. Now, I'm not suggesting, oh, because I imagine some listeners like, capitalism's great. What are we going to have, socialism? That's not the conversation, not capitalism versus socialism. It's um, healthy capitalism. Um, and Because what is capitalism? It's the exchange of capital in, in markets. That's it. So how do you exchange capital in markets? It doesn't always have to be uh, Milton Friedman profit base. Yeah, it's not um, maximization of profits. It's not the, the theorem. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And as long as like, for instance, our healthcare system, you know, all of these hedge funds and investment firms are buying up all the healthcare systems, a hospital here, a clinic here, a, you know, a medical branch that has, you know, a doctor's got three or four branches or whatever. And then they just redline them and they just go through the data and they're like, oh, this one's not profitable. And they just shutter them. LA is littered with hospi closed hospitals that are standing there, dilapidated closed hospitals because they weren't profitable enough. Yeah. Can you imagine, I mean, if you were just an alien looking at planet Earth and going like, wait, their healthcare system is based on profits? So if people get sick, in some ways the system wants people to get and stay sick because they will be more profitable? Like. I thought healthcare was to heal people. Health, heal, it's in the it's, word. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> healthcare and, pre and preventative medicine and stop them from getting sick and serve them and the poor. Like we're the richest country in the history of the human race and we can't serve our poor people. And we have a lot of people who are like, screw that, let them get a job. It's like, all right, well, you know, sometimes it's not quite that easy. And so- this is a long rant to kind of say that if we reimagine these systems from a spiritual perspective, we can have real transformation. It, it's not airy-fairy, pie-in-the-sky naivete. It's something that we have to do. The stakes are really high. Yeah. These systems are unsustainable, and they're, con they're going to continue to unravel. And that's why the other spiritual path the path that leads toward um, you know, service to the world, using our resources to make the world a better place and bringing loving kindness, compassion, honesty, humility, and mutual service, um, altruism to work in systems is, is crucial. Practical question coming at you. Yeah. Where do we start? Like right now, someone's listening. They're walking down a walking path, you know, yeah. or they're at their desk and they're like, cool, I'm buying it. I feel a lot of these same pangs, the pang of anxiety, the frustration. My job is getting harder. I'm getting paid the same for more work. They're, they're like, yeah, no one, yeah. Yeah, no mm -hmm. one is saying rain's full of shit. Everyone's saying, okay, I'm listening. But 
the narrative in our culture is largely, so that means you go to church on Sunday and then everything's better. Yeah. No. So like, give us a, like, what's a framework for thinking about, um, adoption, curiosity, you know, how, how does one get interested without, you know, going off the deep end, like the neighbor at the end of the street who they do a bunch of weird shit down there. They're, you know, they're talking about Alan and Linda. No, they're next door. (laughs) I'm just farther down the street. This is like, but how do you, how do people who are curious where to start? Because I think that is the biggest barrier. I don't think that people walk around not wanting to be connected, have a higher vision, you know, be, you know, have a rich experience of life, which I think a lot of spiritual traditions evoke or conjure or whatever the right word is. But I think we don't know how to get started without, you know, knocking on the big door with the building with the steeple, which sounds intimidating and difficult and weird. So give us a, give me some steps or give the people who are listening and watching right now, how do you get started without going off the deep end? Well, you know, that's a great question. I don't know if I have uh, a specific answer. This is not, this book is to provoke a conversation and it doesn't necessarily deliver in like, okay, here's, here's our 27 step-by-step <laughs> process to no, transform I think the culture. But I, I will, I'll, 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 I'll get into it. Okay. I'll, 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 get I'll into lob it. you a softball after you struggle. For no, 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 no. This is, okay. a, this is a great and important question and I've been asked it before. And, uh, I will say that just like I used the idea that death has to do with suffering, suffering has to do with the teachings of the Buddha, a knowledge about suffering, why we suffer, helps us have resilience, and this helps us with our mental health and well-being, especially young people. So that's that's one tableau, right? Sure. That's one like that's that. one vision mm-hmm. of how a spiritual concept can specifically enrich and enliven our lives. Okay. So on the, in the same way, I would say we need to start with uh, spiritual study. And that doesn't necessarily mean going to any church or belonging to any religion. It's seen, it starts with getting curious to say for thousands and thousands of years, humanity and some amazing spiritual teachers have come up with some really rich beautiful traditions. Uh, a lot of them have to do with community. Mm-hmm. So let's go back to the Buddha. My teachings are about suffering and the, and the, and the, and the elimination of suffering. So also the Buddha taught a lot about reducing the suffering of others, just as you have redu- reduced your own suffering, how important it is to try and reduce the suffering of others. Thich Nhat Hanh taught that through all of his work. And that's a great place to start. Just start with Thich Nhat Hanh. Just yeah. read his books, listen to his interviews, um, read about his life. He's, to me, he's he's the shit. He's yeah. the bomb. Yeah. There's Eckhart Tolle. There's tons of great spiritual and psychological teachers, Brene Brown. There's, there's tons of people to learn from that are all working today. Um, so deepen yourself in these traditions because, okay, I want to reduce the suffering of others. How do I do that? What's the best way to do that? Well, even positive psychologists talk about when you help other people, it helps you, right? Your well-being is increased when you help other people. 
in contemporary American society, I'm sorry, I'm going to piss on American society again. And I want to talk about why I love America okay. as well. Um, uh, we feel we are sold a bill of goods that we will be happier the more stuff we get. We will be happier the more status we have. We will be happier the more we pursue kind of luxury and prestige and comfort. In actuality, that, ma that materialist pursuit, although, you, listen, you got to pay the bills. It's nice to have some money. I'm not complaining. That's all great. But social psychologists will tell you that's actually a way to get unhappy. Yeah. So, but we're being sold this all the time, right? Yeah. That's so, one voice in a sea of a thousand that are saying the opposite, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so... uh it's crucial to uh, dig into the spiritual teachings that allow us then to go serve others and to start on the, you start small. So you start in yourself yeah. and you work on mindfulness. You have a deep spiritual curiosity. You enrich and enliven yourself. Maybe you do that with a couple other people. Maybe you go on your next door app or your Facebook group or your cul-de-sac or whatever, or a church group or your business group. You start a meditation circle. You start a park cleanup. You realize where a problem is in your community and you start to work on it. So it starts really small and it starts at the grassroots. And I talk about that. I love the grassroots section of the yeah, book. Love yeah. it. And, you, and super important to, um, uh, and I have a section, it's grassroots baby, mm -hmm. about bringing people together in small groups and communities and, and, and transforming and, and seeing where that goes. Once you start living a life of service to others, you get so fed by it and turned on and enriched by it. You want more and more and more. It's, it's fascinating. You know, when I started doing service work and nonprofit work, I was like, Oh God, I don't have enough time to do this. I'll go to one meeting a month. Okay. Whatever. And now I can't imagine my life without having an active rolling up the sleeves version of just helping other people. You ask for a place to start. That's a good place to start. There's a lot more to be said on, you know, the, the nitty gritty meat and potatoes of social transformation. Well, I'm here on page 234. I had the grassroots thing is one of the reasons that was my sort of on that question was the entree into like, what's what, where you go. And the advice to start small, I think is beautiful. Like, what does it look like? That is go back to some of the questions or sorry, the uh, quotes that you opened with early in the show, like you're measured by your actions. So taking action, I, I talk about action over intellect. Most people are stuck on the couch. Like, I don't know how to start this. What do I, where do I go? They've got a thousand questions. Mm -hmm. How does it feel when you help someone else? Mm -hmm. It feels pretty good. That's a good place to start. And it's not a, it's not only the selfish, there's not just selfish benefit there. There is you're actually helping someone else. They're, you know, there's the other in that part of the equation. I do want to give you an opportunity to say we've you've pissed on American culture a bit here, and then you said I do want to say why I love America. You uh, you asked for that little space, so I'm going to create that for you. What do you mean by that? I truly believe that partisan politics, as a system, is incredibly deeply flawed and has divided our country and is responsible for dividing our country. I truly believe our country is not as divided as the parties would have us think, as the news organizations that serve those parties that, would have us think. Benefit from that division. From that division, yeah. very well very well said, very well put, uh, spot on. Um, 
I could go into partisan politics and the hundreds of millions of dollars that they need to raise to have all these TV ads of people shouting and belittling each other. And they're not in the interest of public servants, which is yeah. what elected officials should be. So that has created and toxified public discourse. The reality when you travel America is that people are generally very loving. They want to see the world a better place. They want a better world and a better life for their grandchildren. Yeah. People are very accepting of differences. They really are. Yeah. There's a small minority that, that aren't. Mm -hmm. um, and they want to, let's look at racism. They want to heal racism. They want to befriend people of other colors and other cultures. They don't know how oftentimes the way society, our racist society has kind of f fallen. There's, you know, segregation. So we're just not getting to know. It's easy to have contempt for someone on Twitter. It's very hard to have contempt to someone when you're sitting across the table yeah. from them or yeah. sharing a space with them. So that's an important part of it. But I also think that having traveled the world, I believe that Americans are some of the biggest hearted people on the planet Yeah, and ready to drop their self-interest and work and serve others. And I, I truly believe that is in the groundwater of, of people in the United States. And that's white Americans, it's black Americans, Hispanic Americans, Asian Americans, native, certainly native Americans, um, that we need to tap into that. It's yeah. there. It's a groundwater for us to, to tap into in these grassroots yeah. movements. Yeah. But that's why I love and believe in America and its future. Well, th that is literally the foundation of the country is the ability to criticize it, right? That's yeah. why, that's why so many, if you asked a, you know, someone in the military that, that, that is, I think has a good head on their shoulders. Say that's actually what they're aiming to protect and preserve is the ability to disagree or the ability to, to be frustrated with the system and, and call for change. So I, I just wanted to give you that space. Yeah. Um, I was interested. You just opened the door. So I'm going to walk through it. This, you know, you know, the United States and the rest of the world, I haven't seen this yet. So I may be opening a door or I'm walking through the door that you opened that may not be the right door, but I'm curious about this rain Wilson and the geography of bliss yes. series that I haven't seen it yet. So mm -hmm. what, tell me more, what is this? Well, that comes out May 18th, 2023. Uh, depending on what year you're listening to this podcast on the Peacock streaming network. And boy, I tell you, Chase, I never thought I'd have a better job than the office, but all of a sudden this thing came along, uh, which I helped create and put together as a producer, but I was approached by these young producers who had gotten the rights to Eric, uh, Weiner's, uh, amazing book called the geography of bliss. And, uh, he travels the world looking for happiness. You know, what can we learn about happiness, joy, well-being from other cultures? Um, we struggle so much with it in the United States. Maybe there are some answers out there that we can bring back. It's a brilliant book and we made a travel series out of it. So I traveled to Iceland, to Ghana, West Africa, to Bulgaria, to Thailand. And then I came back to Los Angeles for the final episode. And it was kind of a personal journey for me where I talk about my anxiety and depression and, and searching for happiness along the way. Uh, but it's also as part spiritual journey. I wanted to bring back spiritual tidbits that I found along the way. And, 
And it's also, it's just a funny, fun, goofy travel documentary. Instead of sampling delicious foods, I'm looking for happiness. That is a worthy, uh, worthy journey. I want to go back now to the, I'm going to check that out. 18th, you said May 18th? Yeah, May 18th. Okay, cool. uh, streaming, all the episodes drop. It's a, it's a really fun, fun for the whole family. You can watch it with grandma. You can watch it with your nine-year-old. And uh, it, 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 I really, I love the episodes because they, you don't come away watching the episode going like, oh, here's my four hard takeaway facts and my data points. But you come away uplifted and inspired and yeah. um, and wanting to do more to connect and, and inspire your own your own life and the life of your family and your community. Uh, worthy pursuit. So is Soul Boom. Why we need a spiritual revolution. Congratulations on the book. It's beautiful. Uh, I'm like, this is a it's almost like a primer. This is me speaking to the, if you're out there listening, Rain's just going to sit here for a second. I'm going to talk, I'm going to talk to you. Um, this, the ability to be, um, curious is something that we have largely lost. I believe that's part of the foundation of the show. That's part of, as I pick up the book, thank you again for sending me an advanced copy. Um, and already hit number five on the New York times list. Congratulations. Yep, thanks. Absolutely amazing primer. And let's just, let's just um, take a deep breath here for a second and say, great, you know, this is a spirituality is often, you know, aligned with a very heavy conversation. If you want to get curious, you have to, you know, you got to like put on your serious clothes and you got to go have a serious conversation. This is joyful. And, you know, aside from some of the statistics that you open with, I mentioned, there's also, uh, where's my note here? A Kung Fu or religious text you choose you, where you cite a, you know, there's a, a basically a phrase. So it's it's a very joyful and playful right. introduction to this material. Uh, did, is how much of your spiritual journey, or how much of your your comedic self, have you brought along this journey? Is this are they separate? Mm. Because I, what I, there's a levity to you personally, and I think to this material and everything you've done, Soul Pancake in the past, that is like that's kind of what I want more of. Mm. You know, how do we soften this so it doesn't have these hard edges and how do mm. we make it more connective and inviting and, and use humor? You know, was that intentional? Is, is, or is that just you coming through in the work? Uh, it was very intentional. I wanted, and I love the word primer because it, it is a primer on beginning to have spiritual conversations, deeper yeah. spiritual conversations. Yeah. So, uh, I wanted to make it accessible to folks, to teenagers, to folks in their 20s, to young yeah. folks that were maybe office fans. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to write, you know, just deadly serious stuff without bringing a sense of levity to it and, a, yeah. and a, an absurdity to it. That's yeah. just how I'm wired. Yeah. So it's both, I guess, like that's just who I am. But it was very strategic in the sense that these are deep concepts. So I start on the chapter of death talking about how uh, we needed to, in the Baha'i tradition, wash my father's dead body to prepare it for burial and wrap it in a linen shroud and how the funeral home didn't have any bowls to hold the water, any appropriate bowls. They had like a take, Chinese takeout bowl and like a Tupperware container to hold the water to wash his body. And it was in the heat wave in Wenatchee, Washington. And I 
go to the target and I'm pouring sweat and I'm sobbing and the funeral's in an hour and I've got to find glass bowls to contain the water to wash my father's body. And there's an absurdity to it, but it let, it lets you into a conversation on death and in a kind of a human way, in a relatable way. So that's, that's really important. That's part one. Part two is I believe and I, I seek to strive to bring joy to my work and my, and bring joy to others. When you meet someone who's truly spiritual, which is not me, but when you meet someone who's incredibly spiritual, like let's say the Dalai Lama, for example, like I've never met him, but I've seen interviews with him and whatever, like he brings a joyful light everywhere. Yeah. He radiates it. Right. Yeah. And he gives it to others. And the ultimate service is to bring joy to others. And it doesn't get better than that. Those are the people we're drawn to. Yeah. I think about my dad passing and for all of my dad's flaws. And we had a lot of disagreements and, uh, and struggles over the years. He, I really had this deep appreciation after he passed, like, wow, every room my dad went into, he enlivened, he brought light to it. Yeah. He would ask questions and he would come into your studio and he'd say, Hey, this is great. Oh, you know how to do that. That's amazing that you know how to work that camera. Good for you. Chase, this is wonderful. And, and you're a photographer. Wow. Great. Wow. This is a great place. You could do so much stuff in here. Cool. Like, Hey, this is great. I'm happy to be like, he, he always brought uh positivity and, and he made other people feel uh, uplifted and inspired. Yeah. So part of my work as an actor, listen, I didn't get into acting to like, as a service to humanity, you know, I wanted to do it. I like doing it. I wanted to make a paycheck. Yeah. I wanted to have a healthy career. I wanted to buy a house. Like I didn't go into the office. Like I am going to be of service to humanity as playing Dwight Schrute. No, I, I wanted to kick ass in a really cool role. Yeah. But Looking back on it, I realized like the office brought a lot of joy to a lot of people yeah. and has helped with a lot of suffering. So many people tearfully come up and say, thank you. It got me through COVID. It got me through a divorce. It got me through my sister's cancer. Um, uh, and so you were kind of talking about that intersection yeah. of spirituality yeah. and comedy or yeah. spirituality yeah. and entertainment. And they are linked. Yeah. That, what about the guy sitting next to you on the plane? The yeah. day? <laughs> Share that story real quick. Yeah, so that's uh, <laughs> that story made quite the rounds. But I was sitting on a on a plane from Boston to uh, L.A. five and a half hours, and we sit down. And the first, I have my little COVID mask on, so people don't really recognize me. First thing, he hits the office. Five and a half hours, he's watching the office straight through. You know, doing other things, working on some stuff, eating a sandwich, just chortling, chortling. It's obvious he's seen it like thousand, 27 yeah. times. <laughs> and then finally, as we're landing, I I ask him like, oh, hey, you like that show, huh? And he's like, yeah, I love it. And I was like, and I was like yeah, I heard it wasn't very good. And he's like, <laughs> well, you know, and then I'm slowly taking my mask off. <laughs> and he's like, well, the first season starts kind of slow. You got to give it a chance. You got to get to know the characters and like oh the first season's slow huh it's not very good and it's like well yeah it's the weakest of the seasons you know it gets it gets better later on oh it gets better later on the and mask just, is fully off the now. mask is fully <laughs> off staring him down and it takes him a while and then he does a triple take and his, his mind goes 
explodes <laughs> and his face melts. He's like, oh my God, I can't believe it. But that little video, <laughs> oh my God, it's been seen hundreds of millions of times all around. It was like front page news in Pakistan. You know? it was like, <laughs> I was like, I told my wife, well, a slow news cycle. But, but it was really funny. Well, I my last question was the connection between, for you sp- specifically, between entertainment and spirituality. And you've just answered it. So yeah. I, I definitely want to say that I appreciate you and your work deeply, personally and you see the light that it brings to the world and to approach this in, in such a heartfelt, earnest way, we do need, we do need some healing culturally. Mm-hmm. It's very, very clear. Yeah. I think the work is incredibly well-timed and you are an amazing vehicle for this work. So thank you. Um, is there anywhere, again, I'm going to say that the, this is a must read, um, soul boom, why we need a spiritual revolution, uh, is there anywhere you want to steer people beyond just getting the book and sharing it with their, them, you know, with their family and with their community? What anywhere else you'd want to steer them? Yeah, no, um, I'm not sure where Soul Boom is going to go. You know, I have the SoulBoom.com and I have Soul Boom on you know social media. I started a company, as you know, we talked about it before, Soul Pancake. Yep which was much more of a digital media company, uh, creating inspiring and uplifting content, uh, mostly on YouTube, but Facebook and, and working with brands and whatnot. That's kind of that chapter is done. We sold that company to participant media. They kind of folded it into what they're doing. I'm not sure what soul boom as a movement looks like. I'm not quite sure what to do with the platform, the trademark, et cetera. Um, but I, 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 I would love to see this help be part of a catalyst toward social change by using spiritual tools. I'm not sure what that looks like. I think soul boom study groups would be great not to study it like, Oh, to learn from the master, but just there's so many questions in it to provoke discussion. Yeah. yeah. Um, as well as the soul pancake book from 10 years ago. So if it inspires people to just dig a little deeper into conversations, there's, many texts that are referenced there in yeah. the back. There's a whole bunch of other books to read, like yep. A New Earth by Eckhart Tolle is one of my favorite. That's a good starting Amazing. point. Amazing book. Um, that it's all to start a conversation, and I hope that this starts a conversation. So I would ask the listeners, the viewers, to do what they can to continue the conversation. Excellent. That other book uh, that you referenced 10 years ago, is that real? 10 years? Soul Pancake. Chewing Life's, Chewing Life's big, questions. big Questions. Might have yeah. even been more than 10 years ago. Goodness gracious. I'm yeah. clicking on the link here. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I think it was 10 years ago. Uh, congratulations. It is an absolute treat to see you again and spend a little bit of time with you. Um, thank Chase. you for, for inspiring us. Chase of Wallingford. <laughs> Chase who hails from Wallingford. Chase of Wallingford. <laughs> it sounds like I should have a shield. A crest. <laughs> I should have a crest. A crest. Um, thanks so much for being on the show. Congratulations. Again, the book New York Times bestseller, instant bestseller, um, highly, highly recommended and, uh, good luck on your quest. It is a, Thank you. it is so timely. We need you and this work. So oh, you're very kind. Thanks. It's such a pleasure seeing you I mean, and you keep up deeply. your great work too, man. Happy to do it. Um, and for those out there in the world, if you have questions or comments, uh, please feel free to direct them to the show. We're going to have all kinds of great value in the show notes. Uh, on the blog post for this particular episode. Highly recommend the book. And um, it's from Wallingford. 
you hail from Wallingford. For Mr. Ringwell and yours truly, we bid you, until next time, we bid you adieu. All right. Hey, before you go, thanks so much for listening. And if you got value from this show, chances are your community will too, right? In the particular lies the universal. Please share this link to the show with a friend or mention the show on social. That is a huge benefit for us in hopefully in exchange for providing value to you. I want you to know that I really appreciate your time, the attention, anything that you give to the show and the questions that you ask our guests either on social media or through my text community. All of that is pure gold. This community, like any community, is a testament to that old phrase, a rising tide floats all boats. And by elevating one another, by sharing and resharing this show, the tidbits that you learn and the experiences you take away, all of that has a collective, massive positive impact on the world. So just a quick thank you. I appreciate all the effort you put into sharing for this show. All right, that's a wrap. Let's put today's episode into practice and get back to growing together. Together.